0: Welcome, you're listening to sermons and talks from Providence Church in Brisbane. We believe that God speaks to us through his word, the Bible, so we pray that as you listen, you'll be encouraged and challenged to love Jesus and live for him. For more information about Providence Church, please visit our website, www.providencechurch.com. Now to read Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 18, Paul's Anguish Over Israel. I speak the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship, theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs and from them is traced to human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the two twins were born, or had done anything, good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, But by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden.
1: Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, and we do thank you that you speak to us and you challenge us through it as well and today lord as we get into this passage uh, show us who you are show us your character and help us uh, see the the goodness of it and and the greatness of it and help us to be a people lord who who want to um, glorify your name uh, a great name uh, and and make much of jesus in our lives so we do pray for that now as we get into your word in jesus name amen let me ask you guys a question who likes board games here all right, so there's a good, what, 80% of the room. If you didn't put your hand up, then, okay, there's a p- some people who are still putting their hands up. That's great, I'm glad you like board games. Who here's played the game Apples to Apples? Have you guys heard of that board game, Apples to Apples? No one's seen this board game before? Good, let me explain it to you. Uh, so there's about four or five people that are, have, have played this. Um, look, uh, I always ask this question, who made this game? And uh, why did they make this game? And why do my friends want to play it? And why do I always get roped into it? Because it's a game I seriously do not like. (laughs) I I feel like I waste my time when I play this game. I feel like I could just sit and stare at the wall and I'd be using my time better than playing this game. Honestly, let me tell you why this game triggers me. Uh, This is how the game works. you got red cards and you got the green cards, right? The red cards are nouns. And everyone gets red cards and then the judge has a green card and the green card gets thrown down and the green card is an adjective. So if you go to the next slide, you can see this one is spooky and these are the nouns, Jennifer Lopez, my high school prom, my refrigerator, fundraising and infomercials, right? So they're the, and it's random, right? The red cards are random, right? Now, there's one person in the circle who's a judge and you have your seven red cards if you're playing and you basically have to figure out uh, which card suits the green card the most, right? So everyone plays a red card and if your red card gets chosen by the judge, then you win a, win a point, all right? So that's the example there, you can see it. Uh, in principle, yes, it sounds like a fun game. I get it, in principle, it sounds like a fun game. You have to guess what you know, red card the judge will choose and you know, you're thinking what's most related to that, to that adjective. Now here's what triggers me. In my sin, all right, in my sin, I am a sinner, uh, in my sin of pride and competitiveness, I always think that my red card is so much better than everyone else's. <laughs> Honestly, when I think about the red card I put down, it's totally logical, it's, it's sensible, the right option to pick because it has everything to do with the green card. And so I play my red card with this confidence. And the judge, the person who's playing it, putting down the green card, has the freedom, right, to choose whichever red card they want. But they always choose someone else's. They always choose someone else's red card that has literally nothing to do with the subject matter, with the adjective. And they just do it because they think it's funny. And I'm sitting here thinking, why? Why would you choose that red card when it has nothing to do with the green card? This just isn't logical. Why didn't they choose mine? I have thought of every good reason in my head to pick mine, it's just not fair. And they're telling me, they're laughing, they're, oh, it's just funny, and I just felt like choosing it. And I'm pulling my hair out. This game doesn't make sense. It doesn't take any strategy. You could throw out whatever card you wanted. You don't have to think of a reason. Just go with your feelings. And it's up to the judge to pick which card suits them that's how the game goes now i have friends who love this game me man i struggle with how it works now i imagine a game like this right uh, the feeling that i have towards this board game is what some people have towards god right i'm not going to sugarcoat it today the bible says god will predestine and sovereignly choose only some to be saved that's 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 huge We've been hearing in Romans so far that to be saved, it will be our faith in Jesus. We get to choose Jesus. We get to have faith in Jesus. That's what we've been hearing so far in Romans, haven't we? But now here in Romans 9, he's saying, Not everyone will be chosen, nor know the salvation, or given the grace and mercy that comes in Jesus. That's such a hard pill to swallow. What's the point if it's all predetermined? Why do I bother? Maybe the whole Christianity thing isn't worth my time if I haven't been chosen by God. And I've heard the questions, right? I've been a Christian for a while. I've heard the questions. I've asked the questions myself. If God is so loving, why does he choose just some of us? Why does he choose some of us to be saved from hell? And why doesn't he choose others? Why doesn't he choose everyone to be saved? How is it loving when people are going to hell? They're heavy questions, aren't they? And this is, the, this is the passage in the Bible, Romans 9. This is the passage that everyone struggles with. And this is where we find the answers. We're going to look at this chapter where Paul anticipates these questions. And to truly understand and appreciate the depth that Paul goes into, we have to consider what he's already said in the last eight chapters. I'm not going to do that today. You guys will have to get online if, you, if you're new with us or if you, if you missed sermons uh, in the last... Uh, 10 weeks or so, get online. You can listen to our, uh, the first eight chapters of Romans. But let's get something to chapter 9 here. You'll need your Bibles open today to follow because there's a lot in this. Coming off Romans 8.30 last week, right, we heard how God is in the saving business. He calls people. He predestines some. He justifies them. He's in the, uh, work. He's, he, he works out people's salvation, and He does that through the life of the believer all the way to the, to the point where they get to go to heaven, right? All the way through the life of the believer, God is at work. And so Romans nine begins with Paul sharing his anguish. If we're reading this and we just heard God uh, say He's, you know, He predestines people and people, you know, He chooses them, then the question really that Paul has on his mind that his readers would have is, what happened to Israel then? Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, weren't they predestined? They were given the promises. Yet so many of them rejected Jesus. What's the go with that? Did God's promises fail? Here's the thing that we have to come to grips with: God doesn't save everyone. The people in Paul, we, thats i mean—that should be obvious. The people in Paul's time had to understand this, and we have to understand this. But that doesn't mean his promises have failed. Let's look at it. Chapter nine, verse one: I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. And he goes on, right? He goes on to say that these were the ones that were called the sons and daughters of God, the ones that who were given promises and covenants. Uh, they, they received the law, the law of Moses, and they built the temple for God. These were God's people. So he acknowledges that truth. What we read in the Old Testament, uh, you know, this was given, these promises were given to Old Testament Israel. And what Paul is getting uh, us to see here is that he himself, he feels the weight of it. He himself, of Jewish heritage, feels this great sorrow for his brothers and sisters. And he feels this unceasing anguish. That language there is so so sad, isn't it? He would rather be separated from God so that his own people could be saved. Now, what I find really powerful about this is that Paul isn't going to compromise, is he? He's not gonna compromise the truth of God's character and how God's work, uh, how God works. He, he isn't making excuses for Israel either. He's not trying to ignore this reality. He has to live with it. He's in great sorrow and anguish, and, and I think there's something so human about this that we have to get. I've been a Christian now for about 17 years, and there are nights where I feel the anguish in my heart that there are loved ones around me, friends and family who have rejected Jesus. I can't make excuses for them. I can pray. I can share the good news with them but if they're going to reject jesus even after hearing it i can't do anything more i can only be left with the great sorrow in my heart and surely it's a feeling every christian has felt every christian who truly loves their their friends around them and their family who don't know jesus you've all felt this haven't you and we can't resort to saying, oh, it's okay, God, God loves everyone, and everyone will go to heaven one day, even if they spend their whole life rejecting Jesus. We can't say that. It's a compromise of truth. It's, not, it's, not, it's twisting the gospel to suit our feelings, because we don't want to feel uncomfortable. We don't want to feel that anguish. Friends, we have to stick to the facts. We have to even own this truth. Not everyone will be saved, and Paul admits that. He shows us that we, don't, we won't have all the answers, but God is still faithful to His promises. Let's read in verse 6. It's not as though God's word had failed. But not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are His descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Now, if you're new here, new to Christianity, Abraham is the forefather, right, of the Jewish and Christian faith. He was given promises in the Old Testament, all the way back at Genesis chapter 12, about that, his, that his descendants will be blessed by God, a treasured possession, the nation of Israel. Now, here in Romans 9, Paul is saying not all Abraham's descendants, not all of Israel, actually are saved. Just because Abraham's blood runs through their veins, it doesn't mean their physical heritage uh, means they're automatically going to go to heaven but it's those who receive the promise, those who are spiritual descendants, those who are under God's promise and covenant, those who are ultimately in Jesus. This is Romans chapter four stuff. You have to go back to Romans chapter four where Paul talks about Abraham and the spiritual children of faith, where where we are included too, non-Israelites, those who have faith are saved by the promises of God. And here he's making reference to Isaac, one of uh, Abraham's sons, and then later to Jacob, Abraham's grandson in this passage. Why? because they had brothers. Isaac's brother Ishmael, Jacob's brother Esau, which we hear about in a second. They had brothers, but neither of those brothers were part of God's chosen people, chosen plan of salvation. It's interesting, isn't it? Because they also share the same bloodline as Abraham. So we read in verse 10, not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Man, you feel bad for Esau, don't you? Esau's, you know, in the same bloodline, but he doesn't get chosen. Now, now, if you were with us last year, remember in the book of Malachi? We did Malachi here at Providence, yeah? Malachi chapter one remember what he said there, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. It's there in Malachi. Paul's, Paul's repeating what was said in Malachi, but we've got to remember it sounds harsh in the English, but the meaning behind these words is better understood as Jacob I chose and Esau I rejected. Still sounds harsh, doesn't it? But we might want to say God saved Isaac and Jacob because uh, this, this is a temptation. We might want to say that uh, Jacob and Isaac were saved because they were, they were better brothers. They were the, they were the good boys. I know many of us will read this and like, oh, well, maybe it's because they were good. But, you know, Esau, Esau was the greedy one. Jacob seemed like the good mummy's boy. But what are we told? Verse 14, God chose Jacob before he was even born, before they did any good or bad in the world. It wasn't based on their performance. Jacob, If Jacob was based on his performance, he actually was a deceiver. He, he was a liar. But God elected him. See, God doesn't choose based on our works or our performance. He chose Jacob purely by his own free choice, according to his plan. He doesn't save everyone. We have to come to grips with that. And just because our family members are Christian doesn't mean by default that we're going to be saved as well. Just because you grew up in a Christian family doesn't mean you're gone to heaven. We have to own and put our faith in Jesus. This is why Paul can say that God's promises hasn't failed. He reserves the salvation for Abraham's spiritual descendants who will have and receive God's promises. It's based on nothing but God's free, sovereign choice. Now, I often hear the, uh, the pushback on this. Some Christians will say, oh, he, but he knew that he would uh, choose him eventually, so he foreknew that, so he saves those who will choose him. He, God doesn't determine it, but instead with foreknowledge, God plans it but when we look at this passage Jacob and Esau he doesn't choose because of some preconditioned heart does he he just chooses and saves us and gives us the very faith that we possess that we'll believe in him because that's what he predestined that's what he predetermined and elected the doctrine here right the big word today for you guys is uh, unconditional election that's when the bible here that's what the bible here in Romans 9 is talking about unconditional election it's not based on our conditions any conditions that we fulfill we have to realize this. God doesn't save everyone. But secondly, he, does, he doesn't need to save anyone, but He chooses to save some. And so you go down to verse 14. He says this, What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Ooh heavy huh god doesn't need to save anyone but he chooses to save some if we understand humanity right our spiritual nature and if you've been with us so far in romans if we truly understand our nature what is justice what is the justice of god for us for humankind what is actually fair knowing that we are ultimately sinful isn't justice that we are all actually deserving of an eternity separated from god what the bible calls hell Isn't that the just punishment for sin? We all deserve that. Yet, that's not going to be everyone's destiny, is it? Because God, in His mercy, chooses to save some. We have to understand what mercy means. Mercy means it's undeserved. Showing mercy to someone is allowing them to go unpunished when they deserve punishment. Honestly, God doesn't need to show mercy to anyone. And when we say God is unfair for not showing mercy to everyone then we're saying we believe it is owed to everyone, but is his love and his mercy owed to sinners? Why would any of us deserve mercy and love from God? He actually doesn't owe anyone salvation, but he's free to give it. And he may give it to none of us, he could give it to all of us, or he may choose to give it to some of us. You see, we can only be okay with this truth. It's such a hard truth, isn't it? But we can only be okay with it when we realize you and I don't deserve salvation at all. When we understand that, that's the starting point. That's where we start from. There's nothing at all in me or you that's desirable. But it's purely God's generosity. It's purely His sovereign choice to include us. That's when we can come to terms with this idea of unconditional election or predestination. He doesn't need to save anyone, but he chooses to save some while still maintaining his character of love and generosity. There is no perfect illustration, but let me try. Uh, we talked about organizations like Compassion, uh, you know, World Vision. You know, it's all about alleviating children out of poverty. Imagine right? if you had the finances to sponsor uh, heaps of kids and you decided, I'm going to sponsor uh, 100 kids, but there's still thousands and thousands of kids that need sponsoring, but you choose 100, no one's going to dare say to you, right, oh, you're so not sir so, you're so not generous you're not a generous person a hundred kids there's thousands out there of course they're going to say you're generous wow to sponsor a hundred kids that's great it's generous and god in his generosity is is, is think, he's going to choose to save some it's not that he can't save all but he chooses to save some and i understand the difficulty with this the bible does say god is love and the bible says he desires all of humanity to come to salvation And while we'd love a God to be universally able to, will universally save everyone, the reality is he doesn't. Why? We don't know. We aren't given access to that information, and that's actually okay. Because would we actually be satisfied too if he did save absolutely everyone? I don't think so. I don't think so because there are some people in this world that we will judge as wicked and evil. We don't believe they should be saved. What right do we have to say who should be saved and who shouldn't? What we do know, though, from the Bible is that God's character is perfect in holiness and righteousness, in love and in justice, that He loves His creation enough to send His own Son to die for humankind. And what we do know is is that this is God's uh, character and that he He can see the whole picture. We have to admit that. We can't. We are finite and limited, but God knows and sees everything and has it all planned out. And we have to admit that God's system of salvation will always be far better than ours. And that there are going to be questions in life that we have to just sit in the mystery of. Paul himself witnesses. He wrestles with that in anguish and sorrow. He has to hold the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God hand in hand with the fact that not all of God's people will be saved. If anyone's going to feel the weight of it, it's going to be poor. So he quotes from the book of Exodus. You might remember this. A few years back, we did Exodus here as well at Providence. Uh, it's about Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He had Israel under slavery, right? This has happened in, uh, yeah, thousands of years ago. Verse 17, for Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens, the, the hardens whom he wants to harden. I've got it on the screen, actually. Uh, so, there. In Exodus, we read how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But again, we, we have to see this in, in line with how humanity is. We were all hardened against God. And what happened in Exodus, we're told multiple times. If you go back to Exodus, you can read it Pharaoh hardened his own heart towards God. In those words, Pharaoh hardened his heart towards God. He rejected, he chose to reject God, and God re- chose to reject him. God hardened his heart, which means he continued to allow Pharaoh to live in ways of sin. Romans 1 reminds us of that. If you guys remember Romans 1, he says the punishment for sin is that God gives us over to our sin. That's what he did with Pharaoh. God's character is consistent, from Exodus even to Romans. Romans. Pharaoh himself and his sin is the reason for his condemnation. When God hardens someone, He doesn't create the hardness, you see. He simply allows a person to go his or own, her own way. And so there's a simultaneous thing happening here. All those whom He hardens, they choose themselves to be hardened towards God. Did you get, did you get that? This way we need to, that's how we need to understand election, is that God comes into our lives by His own sovereign grace. He, he chooses To soften our hearts and he makes us right he justifies us and gifts us with faith but in hardening god simply passes over us and lets people have their way the way that they've chosen sounds hard hey to to understand what's going on here there's a uh, there's a pastor called james kennedy he's passed away now but he illustrates it this way i found it really helpful as well imagine you had five friends all right you got five friends you have five friends okay those five friends they have decided to go rob a bank you find out about it, and you're like, oh, no, you shouldn't do that. Don't go rob the bank. You beg them not to go, but they push you out of the way. They're going to go and rob the bank anyway. So you tackle one of them. You wrestle one of them to the ground, and the other four go ahead. They rob the bank. In the process, they, they kill a few civilians, you know, like it's nothing. These four friends of yours that rob the bank, y- yep, this is the type of people you hang out with. They're captured, and they're, they're convicted, and then they're sentenced to life in prison. The one friend that you wrestled to the ground that wasn't involved goes free. Now consider this. Whose fault was it? Whose fault was it that those other four were arrested and sentenced? Can they blame anyone else but themselves? And this friend that you've wrestled to the ground that's walking around free now, can he or she say, Oh, because my heart is so good and resisted the temptation, I'm free. The only reason that they are free is because you restrain them. So it is that those who choose to reject God and find themselves in hell have no one to blame but themselves, and those who go to heaven have no one to praise but Jesus Christ. Do you guys get that? When it comes to salvation, it's all by God's grace from its beginning to its end. God gets the credit for our salvation, but if we choose to reject God, then there's only ourselves to blame. Do you hear what that means? The question is, is God then unfair but because when we understand sin, the more we'll actually realize God is actually so generous and so merciful for actually saving me or saving anyone at all. God doesn't save anyone. God doesn't have to save anyone, but he chooses to save some. And the third thing is God's goodness and glory. We have to see that this is, his glory is actually magnified through this idea of election and his sovereign choice. We didn't get to read it but the rest of romans 9 is talking about how god in his free sovereign choice as the creator has created humanity fully aware that some of humanity will be destined to be with him and some will be destined to face an eternity without his good presence he uses this metaphor uh, later on in chapter 9 about the god being the potter and we we are the clay and some pottery is designed for special purposes and others for destruction and we're told this is how god's glory is displayed not just through his saving power but also through his wrath and judgment, the stuff that we don't like talking about, but it's there. It's it's there because it has to contrast to the riches of his mercy, to those he saves. We'll only know the riches of his mercy and greatness when we actually see that he's also going to be a God of judgment as well. We see his greatness, and it explains it later in chapter 9 and how it's extended as well, the promises extended to Gentiles, not just to the Jews, through the gospel of Jesus. That's how great our God is. Now, this is actually important for us, because at the end of the day, the idea of election and predestination, who is chosen and, and all that is, is to point us to the end goal that is actually not about us. It's about God. It's about God and His glory. To appreciate election, right, is to, is to see who is truly at the center at the story of our salvation. Is it about me? Is it about humanity? Or is it actually about God, who ultimately deserves the glory and greatness? i'm not at the center of the universe i know sometimes i act like it but god is me i'm a tiny speck of dust in this giant universe i'm a tiny human being in the scheme of history living in 2021 on this earth in this little town called bris vegas why should i have a say over who should be saved and who shouldn't we need to actually step back and see the big picture of it all god is at the center and he he should be he's our creator and our maker Think about how great our universe is. Take, take the sun, for example. The sun is huge. The sun is a, a million times bigger than the Earth. We should, have, we should have learned this in science class, right? It's the center, it's center of our whole solar system. It's the whole gravitational pull to keep all the other planets spinning. It's an independent source of light and heat that allows us to have life here on Earth. It has to stay at the center, doesn't it? Earth isn't at the center, the sun is. Now, if the sun was a person, the most loving thing the sun can do is actually stay at the center, right? If He shifts anywhere, he, he, the sun, he'd, he'd burn us all up or, or freeze us to death. The whole solar system would crash, right, if the sun moved. The sun has to stay at the center. If we recognize God the way that astronomers recognize the sun, God is the life giver at the center. He's the one who ultimately decides. That's going to be His prerogative as our creator and maker now yes people will have angry reacts to this and some of us will get frustrated because we want to make sense of it like i want to make sense of the person who chose who didn't choose my red card we want to understand why the judge would choose would choose one person over another but we have to be careful that we when we ourselves think we know better and would choose better than god we have to wrestle with this because think about it the more outraged the more outraged we feel about this the more it's a telling of a heart that thinks we're deserving and worthy of God's mercy. But are any of us actually worthy of it? I know I'm not. I know I'm not perfect. I know I continue to sin, even though I'm saved. Why should a perfect, holy God want to be in, in my presence? There's nothing in me that deserves that sort of unconditional love. But here's the thing, right? Well, here's the thing we all need to understand from this. The more we're actually offended by this passage, the more we actually think we're worthy of being chosen. It actually reveals our own hearts, that the, the, the pride, the self-righteousness that we're deserving of God's mercy when, frankly, none of us are. That's me included. But it might not be that. It might be that we just feel uncomfortable because we start questioning, wait, where does free will play into all this? All right, that's the question we all have. Do we have a free will to choose God? But let me ask you, what is free will? Uh, I don't know about you, but my free will is always stained by sin. Uh, if self-determinism, right, if I determine my own salvation, uh, then why would I even need God? I'll be good enough to save myself. Honestly, our free will, we have a free will, but our free will would never truly choose God. We need God to choose us, to save us. This shouldn't surprise us, okay? This shouldn't surprise us because there are some things in life you don't have the free will to choose. Honestly, you can't choose your parents, who you are born to. You can't choose your genetic makeup. You can't choose what country you are born into. I didn't get to choose having long straight luscious hair right i didn't choose this life if it were up to me i would have probably chose to to been born as a tall athletic african-american honestly but this life right i was born into this is the life i was born into i didn't get to choose it so why are we surprised if we have sin and only god is the one who's able to choose and regenerate our spiritually dead hearts we aren't the author of our salvation we can't give ourselves new life only god can And so if I were to ask a Christian, if I were to ask one of you guys, how were you saved? Shouldn't the only answer be, God did this? I'm a Christian today because God did this in my life. God put me in a family where my my mother wanted me to go to church. I'm a Christian today because my friend, at the heart of my depression and drugs, my friend told me about Jesus. I'm a Christian today because someone was courageous enough to share the gospel with me. God did it by putting me in the right place at the right time with the right people around me. And then God changed my heart. Yeah, sure, I had to make choices, right? When it comes down to it, I had to make the choice to follow God. I had to make the choice to get baptized. But At the same time, it wasn't my choice because God led me down this path. He planned it all before, before I was even born. He pulled on my heart and showed me that there is nothing greater than the gospel. God did it all. And the other week, we had a baptism here. And I said in the baptism, the baptism is a sign not of our choosing God, but a sign of God choosing us. He called, He predestined, He justified and glorified. And man, that should be so humbling. It's not up to us. It's totally up to God, and I'm so glad it's Him, not me. Man, I'd be so much more arrogant than I already am, self-righteous if I thought I was more deserving or loved than the person next to me. But we're humbled before this reality. And when we are humbled, our perspective totally changes. You see, that the thing that should surprise us is not that God doesn't extend His compassion to everyone, but rather it should shock us that He extends it to anyone at all. So what do we do? While God has predestined us to be saved, there's still a responsibility that we all have. With our limited human free will that we have, we're responsible to make real decisions and and responses to the offer of salvation in God? Will we reject Him or will we accept Jesus? You see, the Bible actually holds both of these ideas hand in hand. There's both God's sovereignty and our human responsibility. To hold both is to be biblical. Our human decision to follow God is real and critical. To take up our cross, as Jesus said, is to follow and have faith and trust God. And we need to be active, not passive in that. Every human being is called to respond to God's offer of salvation and faith. Romans is all about putting your faith in Jesus for your salvation. We heard that already many times each week. And if we didn't have to actively do anything, wouldn't we just be robots? Wouldn't we just be puppets with no will of our own? But we know that's not true. Because I make real decisions when I get out of bed in the morning. And I am quite aware that I, I will sin out of my selfishness. So I, I have to own my decisions. I have to own my actions. I need to turn to repentance. Yes, God determines my salvation. Yes, He will walk with me. His Spirit will live in me through this life. Yes, but I'm also the one responsible for my faith. I have to hold both hand in hand. God works, and I have to play my part. Here's how I make sense of it. I hope this is helpful. But the Bible it gives us the theology, how God works, His character. From His providential, sovereign uh, perspective, right? He's elected. He's chosen. He knows, before the beginning of time, who are His. Through, that's through God's divine perspective. But from our perspective, from our human being, limited, finite perspective, we have to make real, everyday choices, don't we, to follow Jesus in our lives? It's both. God's sovereignty, our responsibility. You see, in one very real sense, God changed my heart to know Him and to, to want Him and to follow Him. But once exposed to the gospel, I am responsible too to make real choices that pursue that relationship. Which, we're not going to go into chapter 10, but it alludes to these things about the responsibility of the Christian who are, who, or the person, who really, who's presented with the gospel truth. If God has held it out to you, will you be praying and putting your trust in Him? Will you allow these truths to seep deeply into your heart and be convicted of it? Will you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord and Savior? Will you be someone who knows the goodness and wants the world to know it too? While God is in the business of saving and spiritually converting hearts, He uses people like you and I to go out there and preach the message to everyone. And when we actually understand that we're ambassadors of it, when we understand how people, we don't know who will receive it, who are the elect, Uh, we'll we'll actually want to go out and tell everyone, because no one is out of God's reach. It's, It's not going to be based on people's lifestyle. It's not going to be based on their ethnicity. It's not going to be based on their dirty or clean background. God doesn't choose based on performance. He chooses and shows mercy merely because that's His character. Do you see how good that is? And so when we boldly share with people, the onus is going to be on God to change them, not us. We can't save anyone, no matter how persuasive you are, no matter how smart or logical you are, no matter how charming or charismatic you might be. You can pour so much love out to someone, hoping they'll come to Jesus, but at the end of the day, only God is going to change their heart. We don't have that power, and that's okay. We don't need to feel exhausted by by the mission, but we're responsible still to play our part in the saving work that God has for people around us. You know trusting him that he is far more loving and has a greater purpose and a greater wisdom than we do there are so many people around us every day that might be one of god's elect we won't know but if anything it should drive us should drive you and me to share the good news with them with the hope and the deep desire to see them saved let that sorrow let that anguish in your hearts drive you to want to tell everyone about jesus and haven't we seen that happen there are people in this room right here today because someone prayed for you. Someone shared the message of Jesus with you, right? Uh, some of you guys have heard the story about my dad. My dad was a non-believer all his life. And uh, when I became Christian, uh, it Christian, I prayed for my dad for 14 years before he became a Christian. And he got baptized in, the, in, in his 70s. It took prayer. It took people in his life around him sharing the gospel with him. And while we played our part, it was God who changed his heart and saved him. We just did what God called us to do, to play our role in that journey of salvation. Now, for you and I, we, if we want to be assured of our salvation, if we want to believe God has saved us and chosen us, we have to be responsible with it. Live it out. Own it. Confess Jesus as your Lord. Repent of sin. Turn to God. Love people around you. Share the message of Christ. You won't be wondering, thinking, oh, I don't know if God has chosen me. Because the living out of your faith is a sure sign that you are. Actively live out your faith. That's the responsibility you and I are called to as His chosen people. Now, I want to finish giving you some comfort from this topic, because I know it's very, it can be quite difficult for some Christians. And hopefully, you guys feel more confident understanding how this all works now. Uh, but, you see, I know that um, I'm not sure which, which, what kind of faith upbringing you had. I know that there are many who came from well-intentioned churches growing up, but hearing a message where it's all about getting your act together, being a good Christian boy or girl, uh, and if you're good, God will save you. Like I know, unfortunately, that sometimes that's the message we hear in some churches. But sadly, that's not the gospel. What Romans 9 does is it gives, us, it gives us assurance, doesn't it? That our spiritual journey isn't like, isn't like apples to apples. It isn't on you or me to throw out, The right red apple card hoping that god will pick me because of my performance or how good i am or how i don't swear or do naughty things or things like that god will choose who he chooses and show mercy and compassion in christ because he does that by his own sovereign choice and in love and mercy to reveal his glory that means for you and for me who have heard the gospel who now live as christians there is a burden lifted you weren't chosen for your performance That should be liberating. You and I were sinners when we met God, which means it's not about you or your failures or your successes. It's about God and His character and His faithfulness. You can live for Jesus out of sheer joy by His grace. But there's also an invitation for you, if you're you're a non-believer here, you can put your cards down, whatever cards you're holding close to you. You're not going to get to heaven by karma. You're not going to have eternal life by your good works you can actually bring all your baggage, all your worries, all your insecurities, all your sin before God and find forgiveness. This passage actually leads us to throw ourselves at the mercy of God. If God brought you here today, and you're here to to investigate what Christianity is about, this offer of salvation is actually for you. God wants you to know Him, and your responsibility is to receive it and surrender to Him. To know Jesus, not just as your Savior, but as your Lord and King. Cling to the cross. Live by the cross of Christ. And you and I can be assured that the mercy of God is for you and I. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you for Jesus. We thank you that in Jesus, Lord, we uh, can be chosen and we can be saved, that we can know your mercy. Lord, we know that through the Bible we've been uh, exposed now to the gospel. We've been exposed to the mercy of God. And uh, we do pray, Lord, that um, you'll help us respond to it. Your Spirit will give us life and regenerate our hearts so that we will uh, choose you, that we'll uh, choose to live a life surrendered to you because you're the God who is worthy of it. You're the God who's worthy of our worship. You're the God who's worthy of glory. And so we pray, Lord, that uh, after such a heavy passage, uh, hearing about uh, sovereign uh, choice and predestination and election, Lord, that You'll comfort our hearts knowing that it's okay, we can rest knowing that You're sovereign and You're good and You're far wiser than us. May we rest in that truth. May we be prayerful. May uh, May the sorrow and anguish in our hearts drive us to want to tell everyone about who You are, about Jesus. Lord, may you do that in us. In Jesus' name, amen.